Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Give us your Holy Spirit, O Lord, we pray that we would be able to understand your scriptures, your word, which is truth. Mold us, Father, by that which is true and by your spirit. Work in conjunction with your word to bring us into the presence of the living and resurrected Christ for us. Father, show us how we must learn. Show us how we must repent. Show us how we must change. Thank you for that whole program which is driven by grace and grace alone. So would we be people of hope for ourselves and for the world here this morning? We pray, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> here's, a, here's a PSA for you. This is going to be a dense sermon, so a lot of naughty theological stuff, not N-A-U-G-H-T-Y, but K-N-O-T-T-Y, and so naughty, in fact, that the, there's going to be three sermon points. Once I get through the introduction, they're all going to be in Latin. So I can hardly wait. It's going to be awesome. Uh, But to head that off at the pass, where you might think, what's the point? Where are we going with all of this? I would like to begin by telling you a story, kind of like this. When Emily and I were recently moved to Philadelphia before we had kids, I was going to seminary at Westminster Seminary in the Philly suburbs. Emily was a grad student teaching at Penn. We were living in West Philly, and one of our neighbors was a guy named Rich. Rich was a Christian counselor that specialized in various addictions, trying to help people with various addictions, including sex addiction. And he told this story to me and Emily one day, something that had recently happened to him. So Rich got a call kind of late one evening, outside of work hours, but call came his way by somebody that he was in a counseling relationship with, and the person on the phone told Rich, Rich, I'm going in. And Rich thought he knew what was meant by that, but he said, I don't understand. Tell me more. Why are you calling me? Kind of out of the blue, 
in the evening. He said, well, and this guy was living in the Philly area. He said, driving up the New Jersey Turnpike right now, going into New York, and I just can't help it. I'm, I'm going to do it again. And what this guy apparently did periodically was would go on a binge with drugs and prostitutes in New York. Sometimes his wife and kids would find out about it, sometimes not, but he was doing it again. And he called his counselor and said, I, I, I wish I could stop, but I just can't. He said, look, I'm telling you, Rich, my hands are on the steering wheel. I'm literally trying to ask my hands to turn around, but I can't. Still, I wanted to let you know, I'm coming up on the Lincoln Tunnel, and this is just what I'm going to do. And according to what he told me, this is what Rich told, told this guy. Two things. And Rich was, in general, kind of a tough love guy, but then also had a long counseling relationship with this person on the phone and felt free to exercise some tough love in his direction by saying these two things. He said, okay, number one, this doesn't make it okay. And the guy said, what do you mean by that? Rich said, well, if I can connect some dots here, what I think you're doing right now is you feel bad about what you're heading to do right now and you're thinking, maybe if I call my counselor and do some kind of pre-confession about it, even when I feel bad afterwards, I'll feel slightly less bad because at least I called and confessed it ahead of time. Rich said, that's baloney. I don't want you to feel any better about what you're doing because we had this phone call right now. It doesn't work that way. This isn't some weird pseudo-priestly absolution that I'm giving you right now. But the main thing... Rich went on to say, is look, I'm not your priest. I don't control you. But I believe that you can't say you can't. And the guy on the phone driving up the turnpike said, what do you mean? And Rich said, the counselor, I believe that you believe in Jesus. And I believe that the scriptures teach that for whomever believes in Jesus, you have a new heart. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. There is a principle of supernatural change and energy, therefore, that is in you, like it or not, that is able to help you specifically in moments like this. And he read to him some of the scriptures that they'd gone over in counseling periodically. Namely this, the Apostle Paul in Romans, letter to the Romans chapter 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him, Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He told this guy, you are, on the basis of your confession of Christ, you are dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus already. Now all you need to do is relax and live into that. Rich told this guy, Jesus' victory already is yours. Go ahead and receive it anew 
And as you do, you can turn around. You can't say you can't. So what do you think about that? Is that true? And we might hear that different ways. And I do need to qualify change in Jesus. Sometimes it happens very quickly by the power of God. Other times it's very much a process with steps forward and steps back. We're going to talk more about that in a couple of minutes. But at a base level, the claim that for those that follow Jesus, there is a supernatural power inside of you by virtue of your having received a new set of affections, a new heart in Jesus by the Spirit, that you can do things and change in ways that you otherwise couldn't do. Now, if you're here this morning as a non-Christian or worshiping online, checking us out, but if, if you're not there with Jesus, chances are you'll think that's not true. I don't mean that in a mean or judgmental way simply thinking that if you believe that was true, maybe you'd be a Christian after all. But it's not just the non-Christians that would say maybe that's not true. Maybe you're somebody that confesses Christ but struggling in your faith one way or another, and you might say, yeah, that's in the Bible, but I just haven't experienced a lot of that myself, or not in a while. Or you might think to yourself, I've seen other people experience that, to really access the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, to be a different person and to change. But for one reason or another, I don't actually believe that that can happen with me. So we'll doubt something like this across the board, no matter where we come from this morning as far as faith positioning. Here at Liberty Church Collingsworth, from our planting through now, I want us to be a place where you feel safe to explore spiritual realities here, ask good and hard questions, have good conversations, and my hope and prayer has always been for our church that this is a place where no matter who you are, no matter from where you've come, that you'll hear clarity about what the scriptures actually teach, including something like this, that you would be clear, take it or leave it, believe it or no, about what the scriptures actually say, including about change, that Jesus is real and that change can happen. And even though we can waver and say, is this actually true, either across the board for Christians or for me, let's also recognize, wouldn't it be great if it were true? Wouldn't that really actually be good news? Have you ever felt defeated or stuck for yourself? Have you ever felt defeated or stuck because you're stuck with you? I feel that way a lot. But then, by the grace of Jesus, I can remind myself, even though I feel stuck with me because I claim Christ as, as Lord, that's actually, strictly speaking, not the whole truth. Jesus is stuck with me. And I'm not alone. And I can change. Maybe some of you in this room, like me, aren't huge fans of New Year's. I've, I've said in past sermons that my dad, to this day, is the New Year's Gritch, where he'll stay up with family through the New Year for the Times Square ball dropping, but hates it and makes everybody around him miserable. Why should I celebrate a New Year? I'm older. Things are going to be worse this year. That's the old man talking. I kind of feel the same way, in part, 
How many of you just feel exhausted as the page turns and there's all this media, social media, otherwise, rah, rah, this is the year where you're going to be totally new and different. Everything's going to change. If you're like me, you just want to go back to bed. Say, I don't know about this year. It's not feeling too great. But, apart from all of the New Year's rhetoric, which in a lot of ways says, if you try harder this year, you can be different. The gospel is incredibly different than that. If by faith you relax into Jesus, his victory is yours. And you can live into that. So three parts from here. You've been warned that Latin is coming starting now. Part one, sanctus. Part two, justus. Part three, victor. Okay, so part one, sanctus, and we're going to be talking about the Christian principle of sanctification. Then justus, J-U-S-T-U-S, how we're justified in Jesus. And then also victor, victor, how Jesus gives us victory. So sanctus, that means holy. Spiritus sanctus in church Latin is Holy Spirit. Jesus makes you holy and good. We're continuing here in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, getting into the meat of the book as far as what the Apostle Paul wants to communicate to the Colossian church who are being pulled away from Jesus in small ways and big ways. Paul is digging in right here. For next week, with Colossians 2.16 and following, Paul is going to start to get specific for the first time in the letter with some very specific don'ts. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I'm excited about that sermon too. They're like my children. I love all of them. But here, it's as if Paul is saying before he goes into the specifics, just as a reminder to the Colossian church, they confess Christ. You can't say you can't. This is as a reminder who you are in Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. And he gets dense here. There's a point to all of it. Namely, something has happened. If you confess Jesus as Lord, there is a definitive change or break between you now and you then. Whether you came to Jesus in a single dramatic moment or it was a long, slow, and everything in between, it's okay. You are new. So let's look at verses 11 to the middle of verse 13 to start. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul reaches back into the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and brings this image, which was both a physical rite, circumcision, but pretty early on in the scriptures of the Old Testament themselves, circumcision is also a metaphor, where in the book of Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible, We have language from Moses preaching to the Israelite congregation, be circumcised in your heart. And then there's a promise at the end of Deuteronomy that sometime far in the future, God will do it for you. God will circumcise your heart. And that's an image for the stripping off of the old to live into the new. Paul appropriates that image for New Testament, post-Jesus crucified and resurrected Christians, and says, this is you. The old has been stripped away, and you are new in him. The next verse, verse 12, Paul brings that forward and connects circumcision, 
in the old times to baptism for now. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. In baptism, not just a metaphor, but if you've been baptized, whether as an infant or as an adult or somewhere in between, there is a sign and a signifier that you have been buried and raised with Jesus, that you are united with him, and that you now can live into him by faith and repentance. And the promise of the gospel is real and vital for you. Live into that reality. And then Paul connects it back to circumcision beginning of verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. All that is to say, Paul is using this imagery of death and being raised in baptism, of circumcision, the stripping away of the old, living into the new, to say that in Christ, for you, something has happened. There is that definitive break between the old you and the new you. And parenthetically here, when we do baptism here at Liberty Collingswood, specifically baptizing babies, you'll hear me say something like here at Liberty Collingswood, we don't compel member families to baptize their infants and babies, and yet we're pleased to do so. And I believe that the Bible actually teaches that it's good for Christians to baptize their babies. And that's an intramural conversation that has gone on for nine millennia in the church. Should Christians baptize their babies? And there's good biblical arguments that that you can see in both directions. I'm persuaded more by the one than the other. But to mention to you, this is one of those verses that will compel churches to go in the baptized baby's direction might not be obvious, but the idea here is that if Paul is connecting circumcision, which was given to adult converts to come into the Israelite community of faith, and also the children, the male children, and if Paul is connecting here this Old Testament rite of circumcision with the New Testament rite of baptism, using them kind of as one fulfills the other pretty interchangeably, So also, this covenant sign should be available not only to believing adults, but then also to their kids. One Bible scholar puts it this way. What circumcision anticipates, baptism celebrates. The covenant sign of circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled with baptism as a symbol for the new covenant. What is more, if the new covenant is fulfilled in the Abrahamic covenant, and if Abraham, the Old Testament circumcision covenant, had a place for children— How much more so should the new covenant have a place for children too? Happy to talk more about that? I told you this was a theological dense sermon. You're welcome. But the main point about the break between the old and the new, this is what theologians have called definitive sanctification. Sanctification being made holy, sanctus, but in a definitive way, where the church has confessed However you come to Jesus, there is a new heart and a Holy Spirit and a new supernatural divine principle of life and change that is deposited by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Like it or not, it is there. Because of that, you can't say you can't. And theologians will make a distinction, too, between the definitive sanctification when you come to Jesus 
but then also becoming more like Jesus, becoming more holy, becoming more obedient, that's also a process. So there's progressive sanctification. And that's the ups and downs. If you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, there are some things that have progressively gotten a lot better as far as obedience with you in the Christian life. That's the progressive aspect of sanctification. Even when you have ups and downs, that's part of the progressive aspect. But whether you're up or down, that doesn't take away the definitive aspect. Something has happened and you are new. Like Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 6, what Rich read to the friend, to the counselee, you have died with Christ and you are raised again. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, at one point, God takes Ezekiel out to this valley of dry bones. And step by step by step, that's Ezekiel chapter 37. It's a wonderful chapter of a prophetic object lesson of what God does in his people after Jesus has arrived. Ezekiel, can these dead bones live? Ezekiel says, I don't think so. But in this vision, sinew by sinew by sinew, bone by bone, skin to skin, these dead bones live. And God gives the Holy Spirit the breath to these dead bones, the whole object lesson being, yeah, that's kind of what I do. And in Christ, for you, that's what God has done. And this is what we're weighing here this morning. Whether we consider ourselves Christians or not, we, we can be skeptical. Is that really true or not? But don't we long for that at the same time? Like I said earlier, wouldn't this be good news? Years ago, a fiction book that I really like, Jennifer Egan's Visit from the Goon Squad, one of the characters puts it this way. Redemption, transformation, God, how she wanted these things. Every day, every minute, didn't everyone. And this was not a person of faith, this character in the story, but there's still, and this is the image of God barking in us, redemption and transformation. Don't we want these things in our lives? God, how she wanted these things. The alternative to definitive sanctification, be clear about what the other door is. A whole lot of you and a whole lot of stuff with me on the other side. And if that's all there is, I don't have a lot of hope for change for myself and maybe you don't have a whole lot of hope for change for you. If it's just you, Maybe this is the year where you're going to be totally different. Just try harder. I think we're in a cultural moment when in some ways that's exactly what we're told. Just be true to yourself. Dig down into yourself a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and you will find the wisdom, you will find the truth, you will find the energy, you will find the resources all magically within yourself to be this wildly transformed person. But from the perspective of the scriptures, that's a misunderstanding of human personhood. That's not how we're wired to be so incredibly reliant on ourselves all the time. Instead, we're people built to ask for and need help from other people and from God. And if you're somebody, and to a certain extent I'm this type of person too, whether it's apps or influencers or listicles, the whole self-help industrial complex where, hey, here's a hack, here's a set of tips, here's 
uh, new journal, here is a Pinterest board, here is a new workout, where if you just do these things, you're, like, you're going to have more rest, more health, less weight, more productivity, more happiness, more entertainment, better lifestyle, if you only do this. And sure, we look at those things, they're fine, I do them too. There, there are a couple studies out there, just to let you know, that, that say, you know, if we do all of those life and wellness hacks and steps and tips and apps, do you know the number one thing that they're actually really successful at? Making you want to do and buy more apps and hacks and tips and programs and videos. So they're actually less effective at really changing you, but more effective about say, making you think, I really need more of these because then I'll be okay. Point being, grace is different. Grace is different. Speaking of books read a while ago, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye has a character who says at one point in the book something about grace that I've wondered about for years, as in, you know, characters in fiction books can say whatever they want. But do I actually agree with this if I try to use this as theological truth as well? And I'm never quite sure, but I'm going to read it to you right now. This is Pauline from The Bluest Eye. Her body trembled for redemption, salvation, a mysterious rebirth that would simply happen with no effort on her part. I have weighed that for years. There's this character that's trembling for redemption and rebirth that would simply happen with no effort on her part. And I wonder, is grace like that? Or is that an unguarded way that gets something, gets at something with grace? And I'm still on the fence. But sometimes I think to really get something fully, it takes a little bit of an overstatement to actually get you to see how radical something is. And in the greater scheme of the scriptures, for example, Paul in Romans talks about the importance of the obedience of faith. We're saved by grace alone. Even the act of our belief is a gift from God by the Holy Spirit by grace. But following Jesus does take a lot of effort. So it's not quite true to say that no effort is required ever for following Jesus. But then also there's something very true. Because when God saves us, there is a very real sense in which that is unilateral. The effort isn't on our part. It's on God's. The heavy lifting went on the shoulders of Jesus, who conquered the grave. You can't say you can't, Christian, because you are sanctus. We are sancti. We are definitively changed by Jesus. And that means that you can get specific about wherever your Lincoln tunnels are. Him coming up on something, some behavior, some pattern, some thought life, some whatever it is, that I, I know I shouldn't take this exit, but I can't help it. You can't say you can't. Be specific about what those are in your own life. And not only are we sanctus, but we're also justus, justice, justified. And that's also good news. So it's not only that we're definitively changed, we are completely forgiven, as Paul continues in Colossians here. God made us alive together with him, middle of verse 13, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It's as if everybody, before Jesus, after Jesus, Jewish person, 
non-Jewish person. We live because God created all things and we're beholden to our Father God creator. As we sin, and we all do, that incurs an IOU against that God. But Paul says in Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus has canceled through his crucifixion and resurrection. If you go back to the book of Romans, for example, Romans chapters 1 and 2, Paul says we're all sunk, Jew and Gentile, everybody, which kind of explains that sinking feeling that we can have sometimes when I'm actually not all that. People tell me that I'm wonderful, brilliant, awesome all the time, but I'm actually not. When we have those moments, I'm not as good as everybody tells me that I need to be and am all the time. We're all sold in sin. But Jesus canceled that debt on the cross. One lanyap Latin, little extra Latin word for you, there is a titulus at the end of verse 14. (laughs) This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And that's going actually to how crucifixion happened in that context where the titulus, T-I-T-U-L-U-S, was the record of debt put above somebody who's crucified. You know, this person is crucified, what do you do? Oh, you can read it. And by being nailed to that cross, that debt that's listed out on the title, the titulus, is canceled. But the beauty and glory of the cross is it's not Jesus' debt or sin. Paul is saying here that's on the cross, it's yours and mine. And that's what he canceled. And theologians have called that justification where we're justified, called right by the living God, by what Jesus has done on our behalf, paying the penalty for sin, which is connected but different from that sanctus, that sanctification idea, we're given both coming from our union with Jesus. You're changed, sanctus. You're forgiven, justus. Which I believe gets at a core human longing for all people in all times. What do we do with guilt and shame? And one way to read the progress of the Western story is to say, there's other ways to look at this. This isn't the only one. But there is a program afoot to get everybody to say, guilt and shame are figments of an old way of thinking. Just get over it. It's your imagination. If you want to be free of guilt and shame, just forget about it. Get rid of those concepts. But in 2024, what do I see? People still have guilt and shame. It's part of who we are. We have a sense of the good because God has made us and God is good. And we have a sense of our falling short of the good because that's also part of being made in the image of God. How do you get rid of it? And there is no life hack in 2024 under the sun except Jesus that really allows you to reckon with getting rid of your guilt and sin except him. You see, outside of Jesus, you have the two volumes, the guilt volume and the forgiveness volume. All we can try to do is turn them down, okay? But turning down the guilt volume without really believing that there's forgiveness out there doesn't keep the guilt volume down. And if we just try to turn up the forgiveness volume without really dealing with the guilt, that volume's not going to stay down either. But what Jesus does is it has the guilt volume turned all the way up truly because that's who we are. But then because of the cross, the forgiveness volume is all the way up to you. That lets us reckon with the weight of our sin because Jesus did. To actually know that because there is a reckoning for sin and a debt paid, 
we are completely forgiven, and we can believe that. Christian, you're justus, you're justified, and if justification is yours in Jesus, don't turn that into vilification. Where Christian or non-Christian, a lot of the time, if we're in bad habits and bad patterns, in biblical framework, if we sin a lot, we can just keep doing it more because that's who we are, and we're already doing it. What's a little more? Justus says that's not who you are. Jesus doesn't think that about you. Don't think that about yourself. Or how often, Christian or non-Christian, do we think to ourselves, I'm just worthless. Other people have the worth and value. I got nothing. Justification says you are a beloved child of the Most High God forever, and you can't shake that off. And then finally, in Jesus, we are victor because he's resurrected. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus, in his crucifixion and resurrection, disarmed all powers and authorities, shamed them. It seemed that Jesus was shamed on the cross. Aha, that's reversed, where the shame is not upon the crucified one, but the crucifiers and us. And Jesus, in resurrection, triumphed over in the very ground in which it looked like he had lost. But because of an empty tomb, he's victorious there. And Jesus is the power. Jesus is the authority over sin and death and devil. And whatever is going on in your life, if you're in Christ, Jesus is victorious over that. And do you know what you have to do to share in the victory of Jesus? Nothing, if you believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. But that effort is God's for you and not even your own. And when we think about sharing in the victory of a conquering king, that, that's, that's not a live metaphor for us for, for the most part, but there is an analogy in sports. I know that it feels like a really, really long time ago, but the Eagles have won a Super Bowl. They're not going to win this year. If the Eagles win a Super Bowl this year, I will preach a whole sermon in Latin. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But just a few years ago, they did. And do you remember the victory parade? I was there. Some of you were. Others watched it on TV. Do you remember Jason Kelsey dressed like a mummer giving the speech of all speeches? Kelsey in that speech did not say, this victory is for me and for my teammates and the coaches and Jeffrey Lurie, the owner. Thank you. The whole point of the speech and the parade is that this is ours. And in my heart of hearts, do I think I helped the Eagles win the Super Bowl that year by my often pessimistic, but yet very real faith in the team? No. I didn't help them at all. And if you go back and sleuth out my like blog comments about the Eagles, you might not even know that I was an Eagles fan based on the rhetoric that I use about the team. But I am. And you better believe that I believe, and if you're an Eagles fan, you should believe that that victory is not just theirs, but it's yours. And we celebrate it together. And I get goosebumps just thinking about that Kelsey speech again. How much more should we thrill in the victory of Christ, our conquering king? 
not just a speech, but a death and a resurrection. And we'll end by coming back to Rich's friend. He turned around. End of the story. And that's all I know. So this is speculation on my part, but to think, was it hard for him to turn around, even though a couple minutes before that he said, I'm telling my hands to turn the wheel and they can't? He eventually did. My reading of the scriptures and people, was it hard for him to turn around? Yes, but no. It's probably how I'd put it. Yeah, he really wanted to do this thing that he was about to do. Was it hard to turn around? Of course. But then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he couldn't say that he couldn't. And God efforted to turn him around through him. In your life, where are your Lincoln Tunnels? Where must you turn around? And how might you, by faith, lean into and relax into the victory of Jesus? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Yeah. The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.